Well, we've been talking about the tragedy of settling for less. And what, it really, what we're really talking about is a sad situation that uh, people find themselves in, even ourselves at times, right? When we allow ourselves to get distracted by the things of this world, and we end up spending uh, an inordinate amount of our, our time and our energies and attention on things which do not last as opposed to things which do last. And this morning, as we continue our look at Matthew 6, 19 through 24, if you'll turn there, uh, you'll remember that, that Jesus really driving home a point for us, a point that we really need to hear, and I mean we need to hear it over and over again. It's a point about our focus. It's a point about being single-minded. He's driving home the point that we need to keep focused on the main things and keep uh, expending ourselves and, and expending our efforts on accomplishing the goals of Christ. When we were saved, we were not saved merely to change our address for eternity, right? I mean, it wasn't just about, hey, now I'm going to heaven and I'm not going to hell. It wasn't just that, right? If that was the case, the minute you're saved, you know, all of a sudden, just translate me into heaven, right? There's nothing left to do. But we're saved for a purpose, right? We're saved because we have been called as ambassadors of Christ to go on mission and accomplish some things in this present world on behalf of the cause of the gospel. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, how, how wonderful is it to know when you get up in the morning that you're, you're called by the God creator of the universe, right, to carry out what he has for you to do in your generation. That's pretty cool if you think about it. I mean, we settle for less way too often. And, and this passage in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever preached, in the middle of this, it's a call to focus. It's a call to single-mindedness. Let's review our passage. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where the moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, this is key, right? There will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus says here that we are to be single-mindedly sold out and consumed with the things of God. And he began by talking about what we talked about last week, that we are to have one treasure. And in this passage, you got three ones, okay? One treasure was the first one. That's what we looked at last time. And you remember the question that we really want to ask ourselves when, when, we're, when we're thinking about this idea of one treasure is, you know, what is really having an impact? What's going to matter a hundred, a thousand, you know, whatever number of years ahead? He says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But contrary to that, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where it cannot be destroyed. It can't be stolen. And where your treasure is is where your heart is. And what Jesus is doing is he's exposing the foolishness of wasting all our time and efforts chasing after the priorities of this world. It's a sad fact that many who would call themselves Christians spend uh, proportionately an enormous amount of time accumulating wealth, possessions, and power while 
comparatively small amounts of time serving, seeking Christ, following Christ. And Jesus points to that here, and he, he shows the foolishness of this mindset by saying, you know, all these treasures, you know, that are so important to you right now, they get destroyed. They're temporal. They're not eternal. And, and he's saying, in effect, why, why waste your time, resources, and energy treasuring up those disposable treasures uh, when you could be treasuring up treasures that last? Why, why seek after the rotting, rusting uh, passing treasures of this world when Jesus says, hey, I offer you lasting, indestructible treasures of heaven. Treasures that are eternal, that won't rot, that won't rust, and that can't be ripped off. And again, the question is, you know, I'm looking at my life, I'm looking at my priorities, and I'm thinking, okay, is this going to matter 100 years from now? And that's not a long time, right? Uh, a thousand years from now. Uh, Remember, you know, is it going to matter if I'm the world's greatest accountant, you know, 10,000 years from now? It's not that we don't do our work well. The Bible instructs us to do that, right? We saw that in Colossians. It's not that those things are not things that you spend your efforts and do to the glory of God. Certainly that's true, but they are never the main thing. They are never the thing that is supposed to be consuming of us. And if we ask ourselves the question, hey, am I investing myself in what lasts? If that's where my one treasure is, we force ourselves to really consider the truth of this passage. We'll force ourselves to examine the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our efforts. And, and as a result of that, our lives will be and should be radically different. And our priorities will be and should be radically different. Remember this, God calls us not to prioritize our lives based upon what the world says, but he calls us to prioritize our lives by his priorities. Jesus establishes, and he expands his point, uh, that we're only to have one treasure by then using two metaphors. And that's where we're going to spend our attention this morning. The two metaphors, are one of them is the eyes, and the other one is a master and slave relationship. He starts off, he says, there, there are two kinds of vision. One of them is clear, and one of them is cloudy. And he says, there are two possible uh, masters that we serve. One of them is God, and the other one is mammon or money or stuff. Now, today we're picking up here in verse 22, where Jesus uses the metaphor of the eye. And he says, not only are we to have one treasure, and this is point number two in your outline, we're to have one vision, okay? One treasure, one vision. Look at verse 20, verses 22 and 23. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, it seems kind of complicated maybe when you read that, but the idea here, here is very, very simple. The, the eye is pictured as a window, okay, a window through which light comes into the body. And if the window's good, just like the windows on your house, uh, then light comes in, it properly lights the, the whole building, right? The whole room. Uh, if you think back to the audience that Jesus is speaking to here, did they have electricity? Did they have the ability to flip a switch and turn on their LED efficient light bulbs and all this kind of stuff? No. What they had to do is they had to have an opening of some kind that let light into the room. And, and he's saying if, if the window is good, if it's not dirty and clouded over and all that kind of stuff, you'll, it'll do its job properly. And it will be beneficial. 
But if it's dirty or the glass is blocked or covered, the light will be prevented from benefiting the room. Now, it, it's terribly interesting to me here. Uh, the word that's translated in the NAS, which I'm reading from in verse 22, is clear. If the eye is clear, uh, is the Greek word haplous, which also means this, single. Now, check this out, okay? If your eye is single, and I love that as we move through this, this whole passage and kind of pull the thing together. And the eye that is clear really is what he's, it, it, it represents a, a single-minded devotion, okay? It, it's, it's focused upon what it is to be doing. But if your eye is bad, and the, bad, the word for bad there is paneros, which means evil, we get our English word pornography from, then it, it's a whole negative thing. You can see the you know, clear versus bad, evil. Now, Jesus isn't giving an optometry lesson here, right? He's talking about our spiritual condition as evidenced by our focus and by our vision. He's saying that the focus of your life uh, affects the spiritual uh, influence and value of your life. Again, in the context, what are you setting your hearts after? And he's got a play on words going on here. There's a secondary meaning to that word clear, in verse 22, that I believe is intentional as well. Uh, the Greek word for clear, haplos, also carries the idea of generous, okay? And the word for bad, parneros, can also mean and is used as ungenerous, okay? Now, now take this, think about this now. We're talking about one treasure, right? Before, then we're talking about this, and now we're talking, in a minute, we're going to talk about one master, and you cannot serve God or mammon. Okay, so you can see how the generous aspect of that could be very much in view here. In the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, the word for clear was, was often used to mean generous. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25 said, the generous, that's the same word, the generous man will be prosperous. In the New Testament, we find this as well. James 1, 5, any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men all man generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. You see it in Romans 12, 8, 2 Corinthians 8, 2, 2 Corinthians 9, 11, and 13. And it's really kind of an idiom here that he's putting together. In the same way that the bad or evil eye is, is ungenerous, the, the clear eye is generous, and he's, he's drawing this picture here. Uh, and the, the evil eye is, a, is an idiom that you'd find in, in, in the culture of the time. The rabbis used to say that an evil eye indicates a grudging and greedy and cheap and ungenerous heart. If you think about verses like Proverbs 28, 22, a man with an evil eye hastens after wealth. That's the same word in the Septuagint. Proverbs 23, 6, do not eat the bread of a stingy man, literally the man who has an evil eye. Deuteronomy 15, 9 says, be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near so that you do not show ill will towards your needy brother and give him nothing. He will appeal to the Lord against you and you'll be found guilty of sin. Literally there, do not harbor an unlawful thought in your heart and your eye become evil or ungenerous toward your brother who is in need. Again, what he's getting at here is our eyes should be set upon the things of God and generous towards the things of God. And I believe that this generous translation makes a lot of sense in the context of this passage because as we're moving from treasures on earth versus treasures on heaven to not serving God, not serving mammon but serving God, uh, you can see how that really plays with the flow of, of the argument. You see, if you're not careful, 
your vision can become clouded, unfocused, unclear, ungenerous. You see the things of the world around you. Has this, this ever happened to you, right? You're looking around and you see something nice or something that, you know, on TV or somebody else has it. And you just go, wow, I'd really, I'd really love to have that. And all of a sudden you're starting to scheme, right? And think about, well, if I save this or cut this or whatever, you know, all of a sudden I could be driving that or living there. Or, you know what I mean? And the temptation is, as the world puts its stuff in front of us for us to go, wow, you know, I need to invest my resources there. Now, again, I'm not saying that we ought to walk around wearing a garbage sack and living in a dumpster. But our use of our resources, folks, shows uh, our priorities. It really does. And it needs to show the priorities of God. You know, all these, God's given us all good things to enjoy, right? So we're not talking about, uh, you know, let's get in a camel hair shirt and stand on a post in the middle of the desert and show everybody we ho- how holy we are. That's not the point here at all. Again, like we talked about last time, there are wealthy people in the kingdom of God, and there's nothing wrong with that. Money's not moral or amoral, okay? But it is a matter of, am I possessed by my possessions, or am I a steward of my possessions looking for an opportunity to use unrighteous mammon for the kingdom of God? And it's, a, it's, it's something that is really a matter of the motives of the heart, isn't it? God's given us things to enjoy, but when we enjoy those things to the extent that we, we are prevented from doing what he wants us to do, we've really fallen, fallen into a very heinous sin. You know, as a, over my years as a pastor, I've been placed in the position more often than I'd like to of counseling people who are, who are hurting financially, right? This is not uncommon. I mean, maybe you're here today in that situation, right? Chances are there are several in this room like that who are struggling. Uh, gotten, gotten ourselves into situations where we, the ends aren't meeting and we're not sure, you know, what to do next. I can tell you that in, in, in statistically speaking, in about 90% of all the cases that I've dealt with with people who are struggling financially, the reality is they're not poor, Okay. In fact, often they have more, better incomes than a lot of other people within the church who aren't struggling that way. Uh, by the way, did you know the average person on earth makes $1.25 a day, lives on $1.25 a day? Think about that for a second. You can't get, you, on a good day at McDonald's, you can get a drink any size for a dollar, right? 90% aren't poor. But they're often, like I say, well play, pay, uh, paid, but the thing that happens is there's a couple, there's really one, there's two things that usually come into play. The first one is, at some point along the way, they got sucked into the world's philosophies about what possessions are and things like that. And they're spending far too much money on keeping up with the Joneses, or they've been duped into believing that this luxury or that accessory or that label is a must. And so they're about to go under, but at the same time they're about to go under, they have a $90 you know, Time Warner bill, and they're carrying around, everybody in the family has smartphones and all this kind of stuff, right? And they're too proud maybe for their kids to wear uncool tennis shoes you know, at, at school and feel like that's become a necessity because of the worldview. They often have homes, cars, boats, vacation homes, and live beyond their means. And more often than not, they've spent a great deal of money on entertainment because they're craving distraction from their situation. But primarily it boils down to the fact that they've let the world define what they wear, what they drive, what they do, and they bought into the world's philosophies. That's the first thing. 
The second thing that's common in this, this 90% of the cases is that they almost always are unfaithful and ungenerous in their giving. They've made a decision, whether consciously or not, to begin to cut corners by not giving to the Lord and to his work. It's, it's exceedingly rare that I counsel somebody who is financially hurting and see them generously giving to the Lord's work. Very rare. Because it's usually the first thing they cut out because it's not like a bill collector at the door kind of thing. They don't bring in the first fruits. They don't give sacrificially. They don't give systematically. In fact, usually when you get in the counseling situation, you find out as you're going through their finances, they just don't give. And it's, it's giving, contrary to the way we think about it, is not about a, wow, look at this, you know, look at the amazing gift that this guy gave. He gave us a, you know, you hear about that, right? Hobby Lobby gives this church a building, things like that, cool stuff and all that. And we praise the Lord for what, what, the, what these big gifts do. But if you think about the examples in the Bible, who's the example you can think of in the Bible of giving, financial giving? Anybody? The widow's might, Right? I mean, the widow's mite, how much, was the mite, how much was that worth, right? I mean, in the temple, when they're going in, they have these bright metal trumpets sitting in there, right? And, and the, she comes in, uh, you know, the, the Pharisees come in, blow the horn, you know, and put their, they'd put their giving into nickels or something and drop it in there so it'd make a louder bang. She, would, she came in, and it would be imperceptible when she dropped that in there. But Jesus is looking, and he sees across the room, and what he sees is somebody who said, you know what? I may not have much. In fact, I'm, the inference is she didn't have, an, it, was, it was all, right? She didn't even have her next meal coming. And she's just like, but I love my Lord and I'm going to support the work. Pretty cool, right? That's what Jesus looks at. Jesus is looking at the heart. And, and that's, that's a generous heart, right? It's not, uh, it's not going to make it on the back of a newsletter from the next mission organization that sends out their big gift list, right? But God sees it and it's highly, highly important. The point of all this simply is that God expects us to be obedient to him. And one of the most obvious indicators throughout time of our hearts is our wallets. It's not that God needs your money. You understand that, right? I mean, I, I've gone through my life, and there have been times where I've made really uh, poor decisions, and I've made good decisions. But one thing I've noticed is when I thought I was really giving boom to the Lord, you know, like, man, I'm a contributor. You know, it really wasn't the thing. And the times I was faithful, we saw the most fruit. But your money really shows it. The money shows it. People ask me sometimes, Pastor, do you believe in a tithe, right? Well, my answer is the Old Testament taught a tithe. You understand this, right? Uh, in fact, if you add up the giving that Israel, a typical Israelite was supposed to give, it'd be more like 30% than 10%. By the way, this is not a plea for everybody to start giving 30%. Don't miss the point here. The New Testament doesn't talk about a tithe, okay? It does the same thing. With, a, with giving that the Sermon on the Mount does with the law. And it basically says, you give from your heart, okay? You, you give from your heart. Now, is that 10%? I don't know. Is it 50%? It depends. I, know, I have no idea what it is for each individual. I can tell you what, when you look at the law and what the Sermon on the Mount did with the law, it said, you know, if a man looks on a woman in the wrong way, he's committed adultery already in his heart, or if you hate your, your neighbor, then you've already committed murder. What it does is it ratchets it up. It says this, it says, you know what, uh, instead of the letter of the law, 10% or whatever, why don't we just give generously before God? Whatever that looks like in your situation. You see what I mean? 
I'm giving to him first. I'm investing. I'm laying up treasures in heaven. My focus is single, and that's what I do with it. There are really, I think if you want to think about the idea of giving, there are really five good tests of giving that's good for each of us to review our own. Hey, by the way, these are not for you to review everybody else's giving. You understand? Everybody else's giving is not, not our issue, right? Uh, as a pastor, I never wanted to know what anybody gave. I just hated to know that because I didn't, want to, I didn't trust myself to think well of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, you know, they stand up in a business meeting and complain about something. I'm like, hey, you never gave anything. No, I couldn't handle that. I wouldn't be good at that. Here's the five tests as you look at your own personal situation. The, the first test is the test of that, my values. In other words, how do the dollars that I give to the Lord compare to the dollars I spend on my entertainment or the things I like to do for fun? I mean, if you look at my checkbook, which one shows the weight of where my heart is? Okay? And you can do the same thing. It's not just money, right? You can do this with time. You can do it with uh, service, all kinds of things like that. Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So look for where your treasure is going. Check out your checkbook register, and you'll start to understand maybe where your treasure is even though your, heart, your head may be trying to convince you otherwise. That's the test of my values. The second one is the test of my attitude. It's the cheerful giver test. Do I enjoy opportunities to give? 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says God loves a cheerful giver. We had an opportunity just uh, two days ago, I think it was, to, to give to something. And uh, it was kind of funny because it was brought up within my family to me, and it was like, Hey, I'd like to, and uh, my first reaction was, because I just got the bill for my son's college, and it was like 10 grand more than I thought it was going to be. My first reaction was, hmm, why? You know, I, and, and it was just, it was just showed, you know, that I, I was, let me ask you, who, who pays for the money for college? God. Who gave me breath? Who gives us anything we have, Right. So let's put him first and let the rest fall into place, right? And that's where the Sermon on the Mount goes, down the road. You understand that, right? So when you have those opportunities, it's not that everybody who sends you a letter in the mail, you ought to be going, oh, I got a letter in the mail, I got to give, I'm going to be cheerful. You know, it's not that at all. God's entrusted you with a certain amount, and thing, but things that lay you on your heart, let's go about it, you know? Let's do it. You see that thing, and if you've got the means, and you see your brother in need, and you withhold yourself from him, how does the love of God abide in you, the Bible says in 1 John, right? That's the test of the, of the attitude. The other one's the test of sacrifice. Are there, as I look at my own giving, are there things that I cannot do that I maybe would like to do because of my giving? In other words, am I giving sacrificially? 2 Corinthians 8, 3 through 4, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, Paul writes about the Macedonians, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor, participation, and the support of the saints. How about that line, huh? Here's Paul, you get this, right? There's needs for the saints in Jerusalem. This is the, the context there. And he goes up to Macedonia, and these people are coming up to him and saying, uh, you know, please, can we have an opportunity to be involved in this? They're not asking, well, how much more do you need? What's the minimum I can give and really be? And you do, do you think they can live on that? Do you think that's, or maybe they could cut this and that and we could give a little less? No, they were going, you know, they're, they're sitting there in their own property and they're going, but I want to be involved in this because I know that God is at work in this situation. And because of that, can I just, can I just be a part of that? I can't be there. I can't go maybe like they are, but I can send and I can help and I can be alongside them. Are you tracking with me on this? That's a, that's a, 
That's, that's a heart issue, isn't it? That's the one where you go, you know what? Uh, yeah, I could do something a little fun or nice or a nicer trip or vacation or a better car or something like that, but I'm, I'm choosing to live at a certain standard of living so that I can be in, more involved in the things of heaven. The fourth test, you've got the test of my values, the test of my attitude, the test of my sacrifice. The fourth one is the test of faithfulness. Do I only give when I can? In other words, after I pay for X and Y and Z, is there, and there's something left, then and only then do I give. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, On the first day of every week, let each of you put aside and save, as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. The pattern is we give first fruits, right? Not last fruits if they're still available. And then the fifth and final test is the test of motive. Do I give more or perhaps only give when I know somebody might see it or I know that somebody's where I'm going to get a pat on the back you know it's interesting you know churches I mean, I, when I went to our church in Kansas when I first got there everything was designated giving almost it seemed like you know people would write a check I'm going to write a check because I love this missionary and I'm going to write a check because I love this pastor and I'm going to you know what I mean you never saw anybody say you know I just want to write a check for electricity you know because that's not not real attractive, right? It's not like, I, electricity man. You know, it's, it just doesn't do it. You know, you want to put that check in the hand and they feel good about it and all that kind of stuff. Uh, motive is a key. It's just like we were talking about with the widow's mind. Her motive was, hey, I want to give everything to the Lord. But the same place with those same trumpet-shaped uh, offering deals lined up there in the temple, the Pharisees would come in too. You remember how they gave, right? It wasn't the widow's mind where they come in humbly and drop it in there. It was they came in with the trumpet, literally with a trumpet. Can you imagine that? We ought to, you ought to have somebody try that sometime. Just freak everybody out in the church. You know, about two-thirds of the way back, somebody bring a, you know, a, a, a cornet with them, and when it comes back to them, just go, Wah! you know, and then you just pass it through. Three heart attacks, and the church would get smaller, I know. But, you know, but these guys would do that, and the whole thing was, hey, check it out. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look how much I'm giving. Do we do that? Sometimes we do, right? I mean, you're, you're preparing to move in a new building, and I know some of you have been going over there and, and preparing like Pastor John was talking about, and, uh, and he mentioned it, but he, you were probably there. Some of you, never, nobody would even know you were there going in and helping, and you weren't doing it because you wanted to be mentioned or anything like that. You were doing it because you love the church, you love the work of the Lord, and you're looking for the ministry to go forth. And it's not wrong for somebody to say, well, thank you for doing that and things like that. But the problem, it's the giver side where you say, I don't want that to be my motive. Do you understand the difference? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing kind of idea. And by the way, that's not that you never talk about giving. Or even your own personal giving as you disciple your children or somebody else. There's a place for that. But it's not your motive. And this is important, okay? So how'd you do on the test of giving? I mean, where did you fall short? If you're like me or anybody else, you usually go, mm, I could grow in this area, right? And so let me continue to grow by the grace of God. I think Luke 6.38 sums up the New Testament principle of giving really, really well. It says this, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will pour into your lap. By your standard of measure, it will be returned to you. Okay, again, this is not a health and wealth verse. I hope you understand that. But just know that as you invest graciously in the work of God, the gracious Father is also investing back. And you're laying up, just like we saw last week, treasures in heaven. 
and even sometimes treasures on earth. Okay? Not always. That's for sure. As believers, see, we're to have a generous, single-minded vision of serving God. One vision. So we have one treasure, one vision. Finally, number three on your outline, one master, verse 24. Here Jesus sums it up with the metaphor of the slave and the master. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And the word masters here is a, uh, probably a familiar one to you, kurios. Uh, it's often translated lord. It refers to a, a slave owner. And the point here, folks, is really simple. By definition, a master has total control over a slave. You understand? For, for a slave, there's no such thing as a partial or a, a part-time obligation. He owes full-time service to a full-time master. He is owned, he is totally controlled by, and he is obligated to his master. He has nothing really left for anyone else. And just as a slave in that kind of context cannot serve two masters, nor can we. Nor can we. Over and over the New Testament speaks of Christ as Lord and Master. Over and over the New Testament speaks of Christians as his bond slaves. And this is an important metaphor in the Bible. Consider Romans 16, 6, uh, Romans 6, 16 through 18. Listen to this. I'll, I'll read it to you. You don't need to turn there. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either obeying in sin, right, resulting in death, or obeying with obedience, resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were, he's talking to believers here, were, were slaves to sin, so you were slaves before, there's your, you know, you don't really, you're a slave to something, you, it's Bob Dylan, right, you got to serve somebody, uh, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, now what? You became, check it out, slaves of righteousness. So you can't have it both ways. We can't claim Christ as Lord if our allegiance is to anything or anyone else, including ourselves. When we know God's will and we resist it, we give evidence that our loyalty is somewhere else. We can no more serve two masters than we can walk in two directions at the same time. Both of these masters make total demands on us. Worldly things demand our entire devotion, but so does God. You know, God, what God wants of you, right, is, is he wants you, all of you, right? All of me. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, don't miss this, okay? Don't get confused. When we're talking about obedience, we're talking in the context of a redeemed Christian. Okay, we're not talking about earning salvation here. People get confused on this kind of stuff. It's not the idea that, well, I've got to grit my teeth and do what the Bible says and all that, and then I'll be acceptable to him, and he'll love me, and he'll save me, and I can go to heaven because I've been a good person. It doesn't work that way. You understand that, right? Give me these. Okay? This is really clear in Scripture. But what's also equally clear, and we run away from it because it sounds a little like that sometimes, is that once you have been redeemed by God, his demand upon you is all. And by the way, I know the slave and the master thing is really negative, in our, especially in our culture because of the history of our country and all that kind of stuff. But can I just say this? If you had a master who took very good care of you, 
who adopted you into his own family, who gave you an inheritance far greater than anything you could ever imagine or ask or think, who took care of you, who looked out for your well-being, who never asked anything of you that wasn't good for you and for his purposes, right? Would that be a master you could serve? Right? Slavery like that doesn't sound bad at all, right? That's who we serve, right? If you had a master who would give his only son so that you might live, you think you could serve that master? So this, this call to obedience in the heart, soul, mind, and strength and all that stuff is not a call to earn favor with God, but it is a call that says, hey, I see what he has done. I see that he has paid the debt for my sin. He has redeemed me from the, from the pit of hell, and he has set me at his table as his own child. I want to be around him. I want to know him. I want to contribute. I want other people to know this. I want to see the gospel go forth. I want to see the church expand. I want to see uh, saints encouraged and and served. I want to use my gift in the body. You see what I'm getting at? It's not like, well, grit my teeth. I got to do this duty today. It's not that at all. It's I know to the extent that I know my fallenness, my depravity, and what I was saved from and and the concept of hell. To that extent, and seeing what Christ has done, if I don't think I was a really bad sinner, I'm probably not going to be a very good Christian. Can you dig it? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, like, yeah, I was saved. I had some sins. I'm no Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm not eating people. I'm, you know, burying people in the backyard, hacking them up, doing any weird stuff like that. I'm, yeah, I lied. Yeah, I'm kind of mean sometimes people or whatever, you know. Stole a few things. Use the Lord's name in vain. But I'm not like those guys, right? Never been to prison. Never, yeah. No, no, no. Let me just tell you what. If your whole life you lived it and there was just one single lie, one single lie, you have been a, a rebellious affront to the God who created you and who gave you everything. As much so as Jeffrey Dahmer. Or Hitler. Pick your guy. You say, well, I'm, you mean I'm as bad as them? And, and as far as judgment and penalties, you are. I am. I was. Right? I hope, you under, I hope we understand that. Because that will save us from being kind of condescending to other people who are struggling too. Because we'll want to come along and help them. And other people who will help us when we're struggling. Because we know, hey, there, but by the grace of God, go I. And eat his mighty hand. Uh, upon my life you know and and because of what he saved me from because i realized the depth of my sin i want so desperately to serve and love him with all my heart soul mind and strength not because i feel like i gotta people are watching but the reality is for most of us at times like robert robinson that we talked about last week the guy who wrote come thou fount of every blessing we're prone to compromise we really are you know, there's a verse that's found in the Old Testament, in the book of 2 Kings. I don't know, you've probably read it, maybe, but maybe you didn't even pay attention to it. Uh, 2 Kings 17.41. And I like the way that you want to hear me say this much. I like the way the NIV tra- translates it. Uh, it, it's, it describes a problem, I think, that it's as real today as it was when it was written 2,700 years ago. Listen to it. 2 Kings 17.41. says, even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and their grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. That's tragic, isn't it? You're kind of playing with your, your foot in this yard and your foot in that yard, right? And the fence in the middle, which is not a happy thing. 
See, God desires and requires really our whole heart, undivided. Our, our allegiance is to be to him and to him alone. Uh, we can't serve God with money. We cannot serve God in anything else. He said, you shall have no other gods before me, none. There's a passage I love, if you, got to, if you can, especially if you're on an iPad or something, turn over there real quick to uh, Luke 11. No, Luke 10. Luke 10, verse 38. And this is a picture that's beautiful. You're familiar with the story. If you, if you don't have time to turn there, it's cool. Uh, but you, you'll know the story when I start into it. Now, as they were traveling along, he, being Jesus, entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who, moreover, was listening to the Lord's word, seated at his feet. You got the picture, right? You've seen this. I mean, Martha and Mary. Mary is just, like, focused, and she's so into, she realizes this is, this is who he is, and I, I want to hear everything he has to say. I want it applied to my life. I just, I, I can't get enough of it. But, verse 40, Martha was distracted with all her preparations. You see there? The world's distractions, right? Not the preparations are wrong, okay? It's not that you don't, you know, it's a, I'm going to blow through life. But in this case, right, she, was, she came to the point where, look at her reaction. You can tell where her motive was, okay? She came up to him, Christ, and said, Lord, do you not care? <laughs> do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. All right, do you see the motive in that? You see what's going on in her heart? It's not just that she's trying to set things up nice, put a bunch of tape. My wife does this. When people come over, man, she has stacks of plates. I mean, by the time you get to it, there's one little plate on top, and it's all these plates. I'm like, what are all the plates for? It's like, that's the way you do it. And I'm like, okay, whatever. I just need a paper towel, you know. Um, anyway, and it looks beautiful, I'm told. So anyway, um, she's, she's getting all that stuff together, and there's nothing wrong with doing all that, hospitality or whatever. And, and, but now she's looking at it and going, I'm doing this. Why isn't anybody else doing it? You see it? Shouldn't I be getting something for this? Why is somebody having a better deal than me? And so she talks to Jesus, the Lord, right, and says, don't you care? Tell her to do something. Lord answered her and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary. And then he says this, really only one. Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. She was focused. Do you only have one treasure? Do you only have one vision? Do you only have one master? You can't serve two. We need to know that there is only one worthy Lord. I mean, Jesus Christ came and died so that we could live. Right? That's what the cross is about. The cr Jesus didn't pay the penalty for his sins. He paid the penalty for your sins and mine. Right? I mean, he came, left boggles my mind, left the throne room of heaven with angels attending, right? Holy, 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 flying back and forth, all that, Isaiah 6. He leaves that to come down to a fallen creation that has continually over time rejected him, who is, according to the word of God, enemies with him. But he comes here because he loves you and I and because he wants to redeem us. Because we're dead in our trespasses and sins and we can't redeem ourselves, see? We're trapped and there's no way we're going to be able to fi fix that because we have already sinned. And one sin, just like that lie, is enough to condemn me to an eternity in hell because it's so counter to the character of God. So Jesus comes in human flesh, like we sing about, right? Live the life perfectly as a result of a perfect example living in front of us. What did we decide to do? Let's kill him, right? Let's kill him. 
He gave his life, not surprised by that, by the way. It was the plan from before the foundations of the earth. He gave his life so that his enemies could be redeemed, so their lives could be changed, so their penalty could be paid, so they could have that inheritance, so they could be adopted into the family of God. Can you serve a master like that? That's awesome. What a, what a great act of love. Why do we want to spread our affections out between that which is temporary and fleeting when we have the eternal king to serve? Some years ago, the ship Shenunga left Liverpool for New York. Uh, on the way, she collided with a barge named the Iduna, who had sailed from Hamburg with 206 people on board. The weather was foggy, and they say that the Iduna sank within 30 minutes of the wreck and just went under. Immediately, the, the Chinunga's lifeboats, they put their lifeboats out, and they went on the search and rescue, and in the end, only 34 of the 206 people were rescued. 172 people, including the captain, were lost. Captain Padding of the Chinunga that was doing the rescue attempt stated that there was no statement that could exaggerate the horrors of that awful moment. He said the main cause, check this out, that so, pe- so few people were saved was that almost all of those who perished had grabbed gold and silver, which was on board this ship, and put it, filled their pockets and tied it into their money belts and put it around their waists. And as a result, gold, very heavy, right? They perished. What a great analogy. What a great illustration of the spiritual truth of this passage all around us. Folks are grasping for what they perceive to be valuable, and it is costing them their very lives. And the sad irony is that those people who perished in the sea that night, they died chasing the wrong master that they couldn't even enjoy. And while they were chasing one, they lost both. So here we are. If you believe the word of God, and you believe that scripture is true and inerrant, then the God of the scripture says this. There really is only one treasure worth investing in. There really is only one vision, one single-mindedness, one focus, one life you should have. And there really is only one master you should serve. And if we believe that God, the God who cannot lie, pen these words, and he is one whose promises are yes and amen, then we should reorder our lives to reflect the truth. Father, we thank you for this time together, and we thank you for the time and the word. Lord, we thank you so very much for this time that we can get together and to just to, 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 to open the book, to, to, to sing praises to you, to be with other believers, Lord. Um, Father, we all confess that at least partially in our lives, we're, we're, we're moving back towards grabbing other masters at times. Father, we repent of that, and we seek to follow you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength for your glory. Lord, as we have heard from you, your words from Scripture, the one from the owner's manual, the one who created us, Lord, we know that this is the best way we operate it. So, Father, help us to be faithful by your grace. Thank you for your spirit that empowers us, your word that directs us. And may it all be to your glory. We pray this in your son's holy name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.